Hello, and welcome back to the Movable Type podcast, brought to you by University College London. Movable Type is a graduate peer-reviewed journal edited every year by PhD students from the English department at UCL. Please be sure to follow us on social media to stay up to date on our latest issue, new episode releases, and much more. We are on Twitter at MovableTypeUCL, Instagram at MovableType underscore UCL, and Facebook as MovableType or at MTUCL. And if you want to browse our latest issue while you listen, head on over to ucl.ac.uk slash movable hyphen type. We are so happy to bring back the podcast for a second episode to start off 2022. Coming up, we have our casual roundtable where literature PhD students discuss research, work and life at UCL. And later, I sit down with Movable Type Editor-in-Chief Sarah Edwards to discuss the call for proposals for this year's issue, Unfeeling, as well as the behind the scenes of putting together an academic journal. But first, our Meet the Podcast Team segment. Another topic of introductions, I'll get the ball rolling. Hi, I'm Roxana, a student in the Issues in Modern Culture MA at UCL and the podcast host. My background is in cognitive stylistics and consciousness representation, which I definitely bring to my current research on urban, gay, and lesbian fiction. I am also interested in the suburban uncanny as well as sexual depictions of female neuroses, both in domestic and urban settings. I am very passionate about making literary research accessible and exciting within and beyond academia, so I'm incredibly happy to be part of this team. We have amazing things in store for you this year, so stay tuned! Hello, I'm Damien, and I'm a first-year PhD student here at UCL. I'm also podcast producer and reviews editor for Movable Type, and I'm really excited about the new series of podcasts we've got planned for the year. When I don't have my Movable Type hat on, my research focuses on the influence of global spiritual traditions on late Victorian writers, looking most closely at Yeats and Wilde, and the often overlooked or downplayed impact of East Asian philosophies, occult rituals, and countercultural spiritual exercises on their literary practice. We've got a really exciting series planned this year, and I hope you'll enjoy listening to the podcast as much as we've enjoyed making it. Hi, I'm Anna, and I'm currently an MA student on the Issues in Modern Culture course at UCL, and I'm the assistant producer here at Movable Type. My research interests tend to centre around 20th and 21st century American fiction and poetry, particularly in relation to migration and depictions of work. More broadly, however, I'm interested in examining processes of precaritization as a global phenomenon, its spatial representations and bodily effects. I'm looking forward to sharing with you the wonderful podcast that we have lined up this upcoming year. We hope you stay tuned. Hi there, I'm Will and I'm a first year PhD student and an editorial assistant at Movable Type, which currently involves dealing with a lot of odds and ends behind the scenes as we begin to prepare the latest issue. In terms of my own research, I'm interested in the relationship between American modernist poetry and modern research university, and how poets in the 20th century attempted to articulate an alternative vocation for poetry that could apply to the whole of society, in opposition to its professionalisation within the academy. As has already been said, our theme for the latest issue of Movable Type is unfeeling, focusing both on a particular idea and stance of disaffection, as well as the range of literary and political projects which it has been adopted, and I'm really excited to see what sort of responses we get in light of our own strange, rather benumbed moment almost two years into the pandemic. It's also really exciting to be involved in launching the new podcast, and I know we have some great episodes lined up for you, so please enjoy listening.
Hi, my name's Daniel, and I'm into the second year of my PhD here at UCL. I'm working on the novels of Henry Green, who was a very mysterious and elusive English novelist of the first half of the 20th century. You'll be hearing a little bit more about my research later in this episode, so I won't tell you too much now. But for the most part, I'll be behind the scenes as the team's audio editor. I'm also on the peer review team for the journal, and I'm really looking forward to reading submissions on the topic of unfeeling. Which speaks to some of the things I'm interested in in my research, such as reader-writer sympathy, the bodily, and getting hooked, which is exactly what we hope you'll be with this podcast. With formalities out of the way, please enjoy the two wonderful roundtables we have prepared for you. First, Daniel Lewis, who is working on Henry Green, in conversation with Joshua Locke, who works on Muriel Spark. Daniel and Joshua, thank you for coming in and discussing these important topics with us. Please, could you give us uh, an elevator pitch of your thesis, your current research? What led you to pick these topics? Well, uh, my pitch is going to need a lot of work, and it's, I think it's something you kind of have to refine throughout your whole time. <laughs> Um, doing a PhD, um, but mainly I got interested in Henry Green, uh, who's an early 20th century uh, English novelist. He was publishing from about 1920 to 1950, and the thing that got me hooked, and I think gets a lot of other readers hooked on him, is his style, which is um, sort of a contradiction in itself. It's it, He has these brilliantly sort of Baroque, florid um, passages of prose, Um, but these sit alongside um, very closely listened to uh, dialogue and speech and um, looking very closely at the way that people behave and their mannerisms and their movements. But he also in himself is a bit of a contradiction within the kind of the modernist landscape. So he is considered to be sort of unlike any other writer of the period, but also has all these echoes to other to different writers and if, of his era and earlier. Um, so in some ways, I'm trying to look uh, not really at how um, his novels differ from each other or trying to say, you know, there's a big spectrum underneath the, the sort of similarities. I'm trying to look at why um, we, might be, we might be drawn to the similarities, why we're drawn to this idea of a style, like a single signature, a single voice, um, instead of looking at all the internal variations, all the ways that those... Um, internal variations get overlooked um, in favor of um, sort of the more um, maybe seductive and attractive and you know aspects of someone's someone's voice or um, their presentation so yeah I'm kind of looking at that that's fascinating thank you very much what about you Joshua hi yes um I think that like Daniel I was very much drawn to Muriel Sparks style and you know odd sort of way because of her style which i think is difficult to put into words her style achieves a simplicity of understanding so for instance i read the the prime of mystery brody her most famous book when i was nine or ten and it's fascinating to remember that as a nine or ten year old i thought that i, underst I understood a book in its entirety which you can because it's just about you know a few girls in school and you know they're famous um, teacher who was quite cool and a bit of a maverick and all of that but as you grow older and you reread the text you realize that because of the way that she's manipulating say the fictional voices the flash forwards and all of that the the quite twisted dynamics that she is employing there 
becomes, you know, it takes on a different complexion, which is not something that as a nine or ten year old I got because it's just, you know, a conventional story. And that interest in Muriel's part, I think, just was an abiding one. And my MA focused a lot on rethinking um, betrayal in The Primal Mystery in Brody. And I was looking at it from a postmodern-ish sort of um, angle. And it has since grown into my PhD project, which, you know, has branched out into looking at all her work, all her creative um, work, including collected poetry, uncollected poetry, and, and, and all of that. So I think um, that's the general arc of my research, just all of Muriel Spark as much as I can possibly cram into the PhD, I guess. I love that. That's so great. You're both focusing then on a single author, and you both brought up this idea of style. So could you please expand on just how style interacts with the cultural moment that these authors were writing in, but also looking back to them and focusing so much, you said, all of Muriel's bark. So focusing so much on a single author and all of these ideas of style. Well, um, yeah, I think it's really interesting what Joshua was saying about, um, and I, I hesitate to call it deceptive, but there is, there is a sort of um, simplicity on the surface, um, which sort of draws you in to these um, novels. Um, at least, definitely, I, I get that sense for Green, that there's something strangely um, conventional about the way that he goes about you know, writing his books. You know, there are, there are um, sections and chapters, and in some cases, there's, very narr- there's a very obvious narrative arc, and he uses... Um, tropes from like fairy tale, um, you know, once upon a, once upon a time. Um, but in fact, you know, in, in the novel Loving, which is the one that most people know, uh, it actually starts uh, with the phrase once upon a day. And there's these slight kind of ticks and deviations from the norm, um, which kind of hint to, um, you know, like Joshua was saying, there's something underneath the surface, which is um, a little bit disturbing. There's some, there's, there's uh, un, un, unconventional thinking going on, but there's, there's conventional behaviour on, on, the, on the surface. So that's you know, partly you know, what, I'm, what I'm trying to uh, think through when I'm trying to think about style. Kind of if, is it a sort of signature? Is it a sort of expression of a, a personal identity? Or is it in some ways trying to um, yeah, trying to appeal to a, co- a collective identity as well? Is it trying to perform? Is it trying to, um, is it trying to be good? Is it trying to behave well in some ways? Um, there's almost like an ethical bent to, um, you know, when, when we're talking about style. If you have a single voice, you saw, you're still speaking to people. So, yeah, that's, I think that's definitely a draw. But the single author thing is, um, yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> it's slightly unfashionable nowadays. Um, uh, from what I can tell from what's happening in, well, within this department in, in UCL, but also kind of across the board. Um, I think it does, it does, you do have to sort of um, gain some distance from your, from your um, kind of chosen author, because it can become very easy to sort of like think as they think, or trying to sort of track what they read and um, try to stand in the places that they stood and um, yeah, I think you have to step away from the sort of obsessional aspect a little bit. Um, but I mean, on my part, and I'm not sure how much sort of Muriel Spark left behind, 
um, or how much kind of physical material there is yet to discover. But um, Henry Green didn't leave much of a trace. There are not many letters, or the letters are sort of left with um, in still in private collections. Um, and he didn't write much criticism at all. And so there's not even, even much in sort of magazines and sort of extra literary stuff that I can sort of draw on very easily. So I'm finding, and this might just be true of all single author projects, but I'm finding I'm having to venture quite far and wide and going to places that I didn't quite expect that I would go to um, and, you know, dip into different um, disciplines such like history and philosophy and art even just to, you know, somehow situate um, this single person within the within their sort of setting. Um, but I'm not sure how Joshua feels if he's having a similar experience. Well, I guess in many ways there are, there are overlaps in terms of, you know, tracking her voice throughout her entire career and different, you know, types of work that she has done. But I think, and, and you said that it's unfashionable to do single author PhDs. In fact, I was warned off doing it because it, <laughs> I was told that it gives the impression that you only know one thing, which you know, obviously it's, it's not true. But um, I think it has its advantages um, in that I don't have to justify why I am choosing certain texts you know, from, from uh, an author when you know, there's a larger body of work. I'm just doing all of Muriel's Spark. Well, as much as I can, I can anyway. Um, but in terms of um, Spark, I guess she, she has left behind a lot of um, material. Actually, she 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 began her career as a poet, and if you take her story seriously, she has been writing poetry since she was like ten or eleven when she was back in Edinburgh, and you know she became a literary critic she was a literary journalist she was editor of poetry review at some point and um before she began her novel her, her career as a novelist when she's 39 i think which is quite late and she be, she over the next 40 odd years she came out with 22 books so she was she began late and she was very prolific um but i think the interesting thing that um i'm trying to chase down right now is to formulate a shall we say, a coherent sort of artistic vision from Spark's earlier uh, her, her critical work, where, you know, she looks at poetry, she looks at novels, and she comes up with her own ideas as to what works and what does not. And it's quite interesting to trace how that later manifests into her creative career, you know. And she does have this violent, I think, allergy is the way to put it, um, against received wisdom you know those metaphors that people use all the time and they are cited almost to death and you know it doesn't mean anything anymore people have forgotten what it means but we just continue saying it and i think most strikingly in 1970 she was invited to america and she gave a speech um, defending the the value of of literature as an art and she begins that by saying you know you all remember that silly little saying um, the pen is mightier than the sword, like you know, and she says that that doesn't make sense anymore. Why are we saying it? Because we are no longer in a situation in, say, the twelfth century where swords are the weapons in current use, and you can trace this entire, um, her entire obsession with going against received wisdom. You know, like oh, safety first is something that comes up in the Primal Mystery Brody, where, where you know the stuffy headmistress is saying these things, and you know the cool teacher comes in and says, "No, this is nonsense. Art comes first." 
and you know you have that slightly contrarian sort of voice going on there and I find that deeply fascinating to trace across the entire you know body of work and as I was saying with um, her looking at her critical work in the first instance there is a huge possibility I think there's a lot of potential here of finding um, a holistic way of reading Spark through Spark as it were yeah, I'm, I'm doing something very similar, and I think actually this is um, partly what my um, uh, supervisor um, suggested, or something that he if he actually recommends to many of his students at undergrad level, but also right through to postgrad, is trying to use authors as their own critics, kind of saying that you know in some some cases, um, you know obviously they're they're trying to make a legacy for themselves, and they might say things that you know an, an author isn't necessarily the best authority on their own work often but um every now and then kind of looking looking at a piece of creative writing as actually a critical text and kind of bouncing these te- um, texts off each other can be extremely fruitful um and in, in some cases sort of more helpful than running to a sort of formulated theory which might be formulated out of examples which have very little bearing or that didn't they kind of don't account for um, the works that you're looking at. So I think that's really, really interesting. I think definitely chiming there with the sort of impatience with um, impatience with convention and impatience with received wisdom and the way that people do things, but also understanding that in some ways, you know, people do the same thing, but with different intentions. Um, and, you know, working out those intentions might be the tough thing to do, but we'll, at the end of the day, what we have is the thing done or the way that things are done. And um, and so, yeah, I think often, you know, what I'm looking at is, is um, yeah, the, the kind of the, the ordinariness of the how, how we deploy language in, in every day. And the, we say we say the same things, but mean different things. And what exactly do we do we mean what we say or do we <laughs> or what do we mean when we say something? And um, those those sort of everyday acts, how do they reflect on our own our own um, sense of identity or, or what we want to look like collectively and and yeah so I think I think very similar very similar tracks there that might have to do something with the with the the period that we're working in because we're sort of working sort of mid-century I suppose um I'm not really sure when sort of spark um sort of ended her writing career but um there might be there might be something to say about that sort of this period of time when like the big heavy hitters of, of modernism and um, kind of obviously fragmented texts, which kind of obviously look different formally um, or look unfamiliar and unusual are sort of being shuffled into something that looks a bit more like a tradition and looks maybe a bit more like the sort of thing that the modernists at the beginning were sort of kicking against, you know, sort of the, 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 the trite and the rep- repetitive and the sort of yeah routine um it's it's an interesting case i think um but i was just wondering um would you consider henry green a neglected writer would you characterize it as such oh certainly i certainly would but i would say what's strange about him is this is a sort of um inconstancy of that interest that he generates i'm 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 really intrigued by this and in it's one of those things he kind of he kind of seems to be subject to like cycles of rediscovery and um and 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 then sort of drops off the map and then comes back again 
and um, you know it's, it's taken quite a long time for those for those critical monographs to sort of edge into double digits. I mean, he the first uh, critical study of him was um, happening. Well, it was released when he was still alive, and um, and and writing, um, although not publishing, and then. Uh, it's, it's only taken until about you know, I think a few years ago for for us to actually <laughs> get a sort of a sizable amount of sort of critical monographs on him. I think I can't remember actually who who said it now, but the, uh, someone who really is a writer who really admires him, he said that he's the sort of writer who who constantly needs reintroducing, like a like a um, stranger at a party. He's he's kind of like he's there, but um, people seem to forget who he is. Um, but I mean, that might have something, you know, he's had it, he's, he's, his reputation is, his reputation is very strange. I mean, he's, he's been pegged as a writer's writer's writer. Um, and so there's, there's almost a suggestion there that there's, there's something that doesn't speak to, to a casual readership or there's something about his, his craft, which almost feels, um, well, there's something about his craft, which kind of points to craft rather than, um, sort of things that people might be, um, other people might be interested in or people might be used to be interested in, such as character and um, plot and conversations actually going somewhere. Um, but yeah, I, that, that's, this is something I'm coming, um, coming up against a lot is, is trying to think about um, how to interpret. And that might be sort of, it might differ from the sort of things that we're taught, like close reading and um, you know, searching for meaning or trying to make meaning from disparate parts of the text rather than trying to think about what it's like to experience a text where in the moment of reading, as you're reading it, as you're going along. Um, yeah, I'm not sure if you're coming across some yeah, things. Yeah. I might be working <laughs> in a silo in my own head. <laughs> Which is why I think an aesthetic approach, you know, holistically to Spark is very important because similarly she suffers from cycles of interest and cycles of you know, fanaticism even when people decide to look at her as a Roman Catholic convert, when people look at her Jewishness, you know, from her, her biographical background and all of that. And there is also something strange about, I think, writers of that period who, you know, were writing in the 60s and 70s. And a lot of them are not, they're not forgotten or neglected as such, but there is that touch of almost patronizing I, I don't know if that's the right word it's almost patronizing sort of critical attention like oh we are talking about this and you know she's written this and let's talk about her within this very particular context which is actually out of step with what she might be doing and you know other writers like Ivy Compton Burnett and you know Sylvia Townsend Warner and Penelope Fitzgerald even are I think authors who suffer similarly from such such a strange mix of attention and yet inattention and there is i think a lot to be rediscovered about them what a treat up next emma cavell and jake wiseman whose fascinating projects focus on earlier periods hi emma hi jake Thank you for coming in today to speak to me and to the Movable Type listeners. Uh, could you please start us off with some details about your research, basically the elevator pitch for us. Um, Emma, why don't you start? 
Hi, thanks for having me. Um, I'm a medievalist, first of all, and I work on the French language texts written in England in the 12th and 13th centuries, so what's called Anglo-Norman literature. Um, I'm basically interested in how French was being used to translate Latin texts, and in particular religious and didactic works. Um, and, you know, the kind of question I'm asking is how are these translators thinking about their own work of translating Latin into French in England at this really kind of like strange multilingual and multicultural time in the, hist in the medieval history of Britain. Um, and my thesis is basically trying to argue that these translators were really conscious of the work they were doing um, and actually how novel and important it was in the history of textual transmission. That's great. That sounds amazing. Uh, how about you, Jake? Yeah, well, um, thanks for having me as well. My project um, looks at the Book of Daniel in early modern English literary culture, and I'm just actually in the third year of the project now, so I suppose there's a little bit to um, unpack in that sort of just initial statement. Um, the first thing is that I'm looking at um, a single book of the Bible, uh, looking at the Book of Daniel, and I found that sort of approach with looking at a single book to be quite a helpful way to getting into some of the sort of big questions, because when thinking about the Bible in early modern writing and in early modern literary culture, um, it's quite easy to feel uh, like there's a huge amount of material, partly because the Bible was just a massive cultural force. And so by looking at the book of Daniel, um, it allows me to sort of level it down and to think a little bit more specifically about the role of this particular book, which um, has an incredible sort of generic range it moves on the one hand from exciting narratives about uh, mad kings and lions, and on the other hand to sort of apocalyptic and quite specific chronological prophecies. And both of those things are important in the period, but in quite different ways. Um, and so um, looking at that single biblical book really gives me an in to some of the big questions about the role of the Bible in literary culture during the period. That's fascinating. Thank you so much uh, for sharing that. Now, um, it's quite interesting that you are both part of the English department here, but are both working with religious texts, in particular in translation. So could you please expand more, um, especially Emma, you working with a text in French, how is that mirrored in the English department? And Jake, also just how you both manage this idea of translation, which is so contested in literary criticism, and there's a bit of distrust of translation, how you negotiate that? Mm. Yeah, um, yeah, thanks for that question. It's, I had to justify my presence in, in, in the English department when I applied, uh, which was actually a really useful process, because um, I was hesitating between the French department and the English department. Um, and actually, I kind of made a point to be part of an English department, um, because the whole kind of idea behind what the text I study, the whole idea behind this, you know, post-conquest kind of multilingual world that I'm studying is that the concept of Englishness is kind of a lot bigger and more multivalent than kind of, you know, um, the kind of monolingual um, and uh, and that was a that's a point I'm, I'm theoretically trying to make in my thesis and it's something that I really believe in in the study of English literature. Um, that, you know, French lit can be English lit. <laughs> that's, that's the point that I'm making. Um, and I think it's really important to, to remember that English lit encapsulates all these different cultures, all these different languages, um, and that, that they are as much part of the, of the literary landscape as, you know, the kind of big canonical kind of English language texts. Um, and I think in terms of translation, um, I think you're right in pointing out that translation is a bit of a contested thing, but I, I do think it's, it's an advantage 
um, in terms of uh, writing a PhD um, because it means you acquire a skill uh, in learning to translate texts often, in learning to navigate um, different cultures, different languages. And one of the aims behind my PhD is to translate these French texts um, into modern French and modern English. Um, so that's definitely something I'm really looking forward to. Um, and it's something um, that uh, is a kind of, you know, uh, a nice um, result, you know, at the end of the work you're doing is to be able to kind of handle these texts and understand them and translate them. Yeah, that's really, fa- that's really fascinating to me. I mean, I envy in a way your ability to do your own translation work. I think that sounds really uh, rewarding and uh, enriching for the study as well. I mean, I don't actually get to do that. Well, I don't get to do really any such. I get to do very small amounts of translation work myself because I'm interested in the way that texts came to be in English. So the Bible is translated in full in English in the period that I'm looking at. (laughs) So I do end up looking at um, a much broader and European literary culture. And so I do get to do bits of translation here and there, but I don't tend to translate a whole work. That's not my main focus. So I'll be looking at, for instance, um, the full-length English Bible translations. And that's just in, in one of my chapters at the moment. And when thinking about those full-length translations, there's a tendency to sort of focus on those as the sort of end product, um, whether that's the Geneva Bible in 1560 or the King James Bible in 1611, or even the Catholic Bible translations at Dawei Reims from the same period. And so um, what I'm sort of trying to do, what you were saying, Roxana, about translation is this contested space. Well, in some ways, I'm sort of thinking along those terms in as much as I'm trying to get away from the idea of English as a sort of end product um, of this translation work and thinking more in terms of, well, I suppose across languages, across countries and across confessions, there can be a bit of a tendency to see English Bible translation as A, very English and B, very Protestant. Um, And one of the things which is at play in my work is trying to show that um, where the uh, vast range of sort of uh, linguistic skills that they're acquiring comes from, but also that uh, the Bible translations are just uh, much more alive to a vast network of European uh, writing and writers about these about these texts. So, um, yeah, I suppose moving away from the idea of this sort of one big English stable thing and towards the idea of this deeply contested, in some ways deeply, something which sort of gives the translators a lot of anxiety and a lot of worry, um, not just, not particularly early on in the period where they might well um, pay for their translation work with their life. And so um, these are... Um, quite troublesome, and so I'm sort of, I suppose I'm sort of trying to re-inject some of that trouble <laughs> into the, the translation. <laughs> That's very interesting because Emma, you mentioned that part of your research is um, to see how translators see their own work. Do you find also this um, sort of anxiety aspect, or is it much more straightforward? Can you just briefly interject there? Yeah, completely. There's, there's definitely. I mean, I, th- I think we often forget um, what's at stake in translating, 
you know, texts like the Bible and translating. I deal with mostly religious texts um, and it's that the stakes are so high in translating, especially translating into vernacular from Latin. Um, and um, the task of translation in my period is, is um, often thought to be quite straightforward. Uh, but I'm kind of trying to show that medieval translation is, at least in kind of Anglo-Norman, is really um, uh, is a really kind of like self-conscious act, and it's it's obviously difficult. And translators are writing about how difficult it is, and trying to justify their own act of writing the vernacular, because obviously the vernacular is something really um, um, illegitimate, basically, um, in the 12th century, which is really early on uh, to write in um, in French. So basically, I was working on a um, uh, on a French translation of um, Gregory the Great's uh, diary. Dialogues, which is you know uh, uh, a very canonical text in the Middle Ages, um, and the translator um, basically creates these huge digressions in the middle of the text. And this is you know this is an important text, so the translator is just including these big paragraphs, being like, "Oof, um, I'm translating Latin prose into French verse, and please forgive me because I know it's not a very good thing to do, but I can't help it because the lay need to understand um, these Latin texts, and it's really difficult. So please forgive me." Um, and it's all kind of, it's all oddly personal and kind of, you don't really expect that. And this is a monk at Oxford uh, translating St. Gregory the Great. Um, and um, obviously in doing that, he's, he's um, completely changing um, the, the Latin work, completely changing what the, the, what the work originally is and reforming it and transforming it into something different. So it's a kind of, it's, it's, a, it's a both a really creative and destructive um, act at the same time that is very anxiety inducing, I think, for the medieval translator uh, to be, you know, to, to dare to touch these, um, these uh, what, what we call in, uh, in the Middle Ages, kind of, you know, octoritas, the Latinate octoritas of, word, of um, these Latin works. Amazing. Uh, that's so interesting because you were talking, both of you, so much about, like, these process and I, a process of works and how the, the work gets done. And I guess two questions that arise um, that are a bit different, but if you could say something about both would be great. Um, as part of the English department, how do you balance sort of not getting sucked into the culture because you can like work so much on the culture itself? Um, how do you sort of balance, I don't know, literary analysis or like textual analysis with the culture in general? Uh, but also just much more pragmatically, how do you work with these ancient texts? Do you ever visit archives? Do you um, have everything digitized by this point? I don't know, what's exciting about that uh, in your personal experiences? So, um, yeah, I mean, thinking about those two elements of that question, I suppose firstly thinking about the role of culture in translation. Um, I, my answer to that tends to be, uh, in some ways, a, a very inclusive one, in some ways perhaps quite frustrating, but it's to see the whole thing as part of a single literary culture. So while I do look at Bible translation and seeing that as one particular thing, I'm also sort of broadening things out and thinking for a great, sort of the majority of the thesis about the texts that come from the actual biblical text and the text that scripture generates. And I'm trying to um, look at the book of Daniel as this generative text, which is giving us new narratives, new ways of retelling scripture that is particularly um, alive for people in the 16th and 17th centuries, that they might try and rewrite a biblical story and make it really very pertinent to their lives, to the political happenings of their day. 
And so um, really trying to see those texts, not just as sort of static biblical things, but things which are moving around and being generated in terms of narrative and interpretation. And then, yeah, when it comes to archives, it, it, that, that question of culture then sort of ripples out into the archives that I end up looking at, because I suppose in some ways we're just very lucky to be in London and have the British Library so close by, um, and um, the rare books room in the British Library or the manuscripts room in the British Library can be a total godsend for an early modernist uh, working in London. Um, and that's very often the sort of first port of call to go and call up a text. And the British li- if you're working in the British Library, I often find that the, the book itself, they'll have a copy of the, of, of the original imprint of the book itself that I'm looking for. Are there any markings on it? Are there any annotations? Is there anything in the margins that I can use to try and trace a little bit further about how this text was read? So they, that ends up sort of sometimes being a bit of a three-part process. The first part is to think about the biblical text. The second part will be to think about these narratives that expand on it or that retell it or that do something interesting and imaginative with it or tell a sermon about it, these kinds of things. And then the third step will go and be cool those things up, look at them. How are those things being read? Sometimes it gives you, it will give me nothing. And anyone who worked <laughs> in the archives will know it can be an endlessly frustrating process. I'll find the book and it will not have a single annotation. Nothing will be there. But every now and again, I'll find something which will lead me on a bit of a trail and show me a little bit more about how um, people in the 16th and 17th centuries were reading the text that I'm looking at. And this is, can be this sort of incredibly fulfilling moment where they're sort of sitting right in front of you, scribbling on the page, and you've got their, you've got their notes right there. And it can, you know, you don't want to read too much in a, into a note. A note can be an incredibly uh, fleeting thing, an ephemeral thing, just it's very difficult to exactly trace what a note means, because as we all know from our own note-taking, it can be just a totally random thing. Oh, I like that line, I'm gonna try and remember it. Or that line is really relevant to this big thing that's happening in my life. So um, it can have that full scale. So again, you don't wanna to read too much into it, but that archival process is a very rich and I think very rewarding. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to echo um, Jake on that one. The British Library is a godsend. I mean, you can literally ask for a manuscript and my, my stuff is, is quite old. It's, you know, it's 13th century manuscripts and they will literally, it will literally be there on the day, which is an amazing, um, amazing thing. I mean, I, I work with manuscripts in Paris at the BNF and my God, let me tell you, the um, librarians there are <laughs> really stingy with the manuscripts. So, um, so the, like they will literally, I have asked multiple times to see this manuscript and they, I have, you know, my professor wrote me a letter and everything and, and they, they flat out refused um, to show it to me. Um, so, you know, the British Library is really generous uh, with its manuscripts, um, especially with young researchers. They're not, they will just hand it over to you, trust you with it, which is really great. Um, and I, I really like that image you used, Jake, of you know, that finding a trail. I think, I think that's, that's really it. I think it's all those kind of marginal, kind of those little things that people often overlook, which are often the most interesting, um, I think. And um, 
my particular favorite is often the the you know medieval doodling in the in the margins i so this um this french translation the the gregory the great's dialogues that i was looking at um the translator doodled some um uh two two kind of monkish figures uh, at the bottom um of the page kind of like just staring at each other in a kind of mirroring uh, effect which i think is a kind of visual representation of what you know dialoguing means <laughs> um so you know things like that are really precious um, so archival work is, is one of the great pleasures of research, I think. And the advantage of our period as well is that there's so much of it. And it's such a kind of material culture. Uh, and there's this big, you know, um, trend at the moment of, um, uh, of kind of studying uh, texts as, as material objects. Um, something which has, you know, bears its full meaning in the Middle Ages um, and indeed later on. That's so lovely. Um, just to uh, finish off, I wish we had so much more time. But uh, just to uh, finish uh, and round up this conversation, both of you highlighted this wonderful moment of connection with the past, mentioning like the scribbles in the margins and all of that. Can you just expand on um, looking at these medieval and early modern literary cultures from a 21st century perspective and just how you see that impacting the now, but also the appraisal of the past? Um, yeah, I mean, my, um, my PhD was in part um, a response to um, this kind of worrying trend um, between England and France, especially concerning Brexit, um, of kind of separating the two cultures, um, separate, you know, putting into question what, what being European means, what kind of indirectly, what European literature means, what European culture means. Um, so my PhD was, um, I guess it's, it's kind of relevance today, and this is how I kind of, I, I sold it in my proposal, um, is um, to kind of um, theorise through medieval literature, this coming together um, of the two kind of, you know, the two cultures, both in France and in England, um, and, and to suggest that they are a lot more intertwined um, than we would kind of think of today. Um, so um, I also deal with um, some female translators uh, in my PhD, the first uh, female translators in French uh, in the 12th century. So that kind of gendered element comes in um, and it's, uh, I guess, you know, um, always relevant right now in terms of kind of what, um, how important the female voice is and the act of kind of, you know, uh, generating text of the woman, um, how, how crucial that is and how lost it kind of has become in criticism, um, you know, even, you know, 50 years ago, 100 years ago. Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, I think I certainly didn't have an equivalent sort of um, political or contemporary uh, impetus behind my project. I sort of wish I did. But I think that the question of the relate, I mean, the, the, the early modern in particular, and I imagine this applies to medieval, cult medieval work as well, though I don't know it as well, is constantly being driven by contemporary questions. And I think that increasingly early modern scholars are less afraid to say that we are being driven by um, contemporary questions. And just, you know, very recently in the past two years, there's been a much greater emphasis on uh, thinking about race in the early modern period, which has been a sort of very welcome uh, adjustment to the way in which the field and the studies have been going. But for my particular uh, angle on where my studies came from, sort of just came from a, a, a development from um, undergraduate and master's work, um, and which I found surprisingly over the course of the PhD 
um, speaks to the contemporary moment in ways that have surprised me. I just finished a chapter on um, the big bad tyrant of the Book of Daniel, who's called Nebuchadnezzar. And um, thinking about questions of tyranny with um, particular leaders in America was um, a very uh, sort of felt, yeah, very, like, sort of very appropriate moment. Daniel's also full of apocalyptic prophecies. And there have been moments, certainly over the pandemic and with the climate, when things have felt apocalyptic. <laughs> so um, I have often thought that the, the, the resonances have surprised me. I don't know how much they make it into my work, but the resonances have certainly surprised me. So, yeah. Thank you both so much. It's amazing to hear all these moments of surprise that um, you have found in your works. And... It's all of this is extremely fascinating. So thank you for coming in and sharing it with us. Well, we hope you enjoyed those discussions as much as we did. It's now time to talk about this year's movable type call for papers, which encourages researchers to explore emotion and feeling through the lens of unfeeling. The journal accepts academic articles, books and film reviews, and creative writing. The current submission deadline is February 22nd. For more information, please visit ucl.ac.uk slash movable hyphen type slash unfeeling. To share a bit of the process with us and encourage people to submit their work, movable type editor-in-chief, Sarah Edwards. Hi, Sarah. How are you? I'm well, thanks. How are you doing, Roxana? I'm good too. Very excited to hear the answers to these questions. Yeah, I'm excited to share the answers with you. <laughs> okay, so how does the theme get chosen and why did you settle on this year's particular theme? Mm. So each year the editors of Movable Type compile a list of their reading and research interests and they each consider how those interests fit in relation to emerging or existing trends in literary criticism. Uh, and we all propose some potential ideas for a call for papers. Once we've done that, all the editors meet to discuss the proposed ideas, and we sort of look for areas for overlap, really, between the different ideas we bring to the table. So in those meetings, we're always looking for an umbrella theme, maybe a single word that can encapsulate as many as uh, as many of even those editorial ideas as possible, while still providing a focus point for our contributors. So. This year, the editors brought so many exciting ideas to the table. One idea we discussed at some length was the abnatural in relation to Jesse Oakes Taylor's uh, The Sky of Our Manufacture, and another was Unfeeling. And although those ideas seemed quite different at first, we realised at that sort of roundtable meeting that there was a common interest in affects or emotions in narratives about the environment. And so we decided that our interest in the abnatural this year could be encompassed by unfeeling, a theme which we felt would carry well and in really interesting ways, actually, across different time periods, while still inviting discussion of a wide range of authors and genres and providing affect as a, as a theoretical base. So in large part, our theme this year actually ended up responding to Dr. Christine Zain Yao's first book, Disaffected, uh, The Cultural Politics of Unfeeling in 19th Century America, which was published last year by Duke University Press and won one of the inaugural DUP Scholars of Colour uh, First Book Awards. So in that book, Yao explores the racial and sexual politics of unfeeling, so affects that are not recognised as feeling, 
as a means of survival and refusal in 19th century America. And she positions on feeling beyond sentimentalism's paradigm of universal feeling. So he felt this call for papers uh, could invite contributions that could think about feeling and unfeeling uh, in relation to a range of topics in issues both past and present. And we're, we're really interested to see how contributors might discuss it in relation to topics such as race, disability, the environment, the Anthropocene and transfeminism. So really exciting stuff this year lined up. Yeah, that is so fascinating. And I also love the choosing something that relates to the students and editors' interests already and how it engages with what's going on in the UCL English department. I think that's amazing. Very exciting stuff. Now, could you please tell us a bit about how the submission and editing process works? Yeah, of course. So the submission deadline this year is February 22nd. And that deadline applies to all book reviews, articles and creative writing submissions. Sometimes we give a small extension, so contributors can expect a second deadline to be advertised around the end of the month, which would likely place uh-huh. yeah, <laughs> so that would likely place the final deadline for submissions at the start of March. Um, so we usually build in just a little bit of wiggle room, um, and we stagger the deadline announcements like this to give contributors a little more time to get their work ready to submit, and just to attract sort of a second wave of attention. Once we receive all those submissions, uh, we anonymise them, or I do, and they go through a double-blind peer review process. So before they're seen by the editors, they actually all go to peer reviewers. And those reviewers do an initial proofread. They make editorial recommendations, which ultimately get forwarded to the editors. So Mm -hmm. those peer reviewers have a really important job. Um, They're responsible for checking that the content aligns with the theme. Um, They check that the style of the writing is suitable, that the research is really rigorous, and they flag areas for improvement. Um, So all submissions then, complete with peer reviewers, are sent to the uh, editor-in-chief, so they're sent to me, uh, and I allocate them to teams of editors. And those editors take the time to read them really carefully. And then they meet as as a group to discuss every single thing we've been um, submitted. And they choose which submissions to accept and which to revise for publication with the authors. So we have a system just like any other journal where you either are accepted for uh, major revisions, for minor revisions. Or unfortunately, you could be rejected for that year. Um, but you'll receive a little bit of feedback as to why that was. Um, and often it's just because the competition in that particular year was particularly fierce um, or because it just wasn't quite in line with the theme enough. Um, I think those are the most common reasons. Um, but if at that point you've been successful, your uh, article or your book review or your creative writing is allocated to an editor, just a single editor, who will work one-on-one with you to fine-tune it for publication in the autumn. That is amazing. And a lot of work, so yeah. good luck to all the editors. <laughs> yeah. But also, I'm sure, very rewarding when you have a finished product. It is. It's so rewarding. And it's really nice, I think, for editors and authors to be able to work one-on-one. Um, I think yes. that's, that's really special. That makes for a, a really enjoyable working environment. Great. On the topic of fierce competition and amazing work, what type of work are you hoping to see this year? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, I guess the common thread 
you know, the thing we're looking for every single year is we want articles and pieces of writing that are really on theme. Um, and we're looking for our contributors as a whole um, this year to explore all kinds of unfeeling. Um, we'd love to see this concept of unfeeling being moved across time periods and national borders. Um, we'd love to see intersectional readings. Um, I think we find that close reading and close engagement with the text makes for really good articles in particular. So it is actually very important to us that contributors don't just get caught up in the theme to the extent they neglect to discuss how it relates to mm -hmm. the style or structure of a text. So um, affect studies as well has had quite a strong influence on the creation of our call for papers this year. So I know our editors would really enjoy seeing some real theoretical engagement with affect. And we're, we're happy, you know, and we encourage that any theory that's being considered can also be turned into something that you can close read as well. Um, so that would be great to see. Uh, in terms of book reviews, I mean, there are lots of contemporary releases recommended in our book reviews call for papers, which we'd be really excited to see writing about. Um, so among some of the books on there, which you can also find online, are Cathy uh, Park Hong's Minor Feelings, uh, Patricia Lockwood's Nobody's Talking About This, Natasha Brown's Assembly, uh, Rhea Shane's Disability Literature Genre, uh, Representation and Affect in Contemporary Fiction, uh, and of course Yao's uh, Disaffected. Now there's just, you know, some titles there from actually a really, really long list that we put together as editors. So we don't want contributors to feel limited by it. But if they find it as a source of inspiration, then, you know, that's great. Um, note that we'd also be really happy to see any of those texts forming the basis for an article for this year's issue as well. So any contemporary scholars out there uh, might want to sort of you know, pick up one of those as, as something if it's something they're working on um, and they could write about it for us. I suppose, finally, in terms of creative writing, um, it surprises. <laughs> we had some really surprising submissions last year that we didn't see coming, which um, worked in really great ways with the themes. So we're happy to publish creative writing in any genre, as long as it relates in some way to that theme of unfeeling. Um, and I would say that we do have to consider how closely creative pieces relate to that theme so it's really worth bearing it in mind and making sure that if you've got a few pieces to choose from you're picking the one that really is most relevant that's great it's great how all the pieces um make for a very well-rounded journal and product it's just very cool to see that you take creative writing book reviews and articles or essays as well yeah that's so fun <laughs> No, it is. We actually um, opened it back up to creative writing last year. So that was the first year we reintroduced it. Um, and who knows, we might just introduce something else this year as well. Um, but we don't think it will be in the written form. Maybe something for Ooh. a future podcast. <laughs> Exciting. Yes, we'll be hoping for the scoop. Definitely. <laughs> and finally, please share a message for movable type readers, listeners and potential contributors. So I think the main thing I want to say is if you're working on something that you feel relates well to our theme, then really, please do consider applying to us. Even if you feel like you're coming at it from, you know, a slightly different angle or with a topic we haven't touched on in that call for papers, we, we don't want you to be put off by that. The call for papers just includes suggestions. It's by no means an exhausted list of all the things we'd like to see and read. Also, if you want to submit to us and the deadline feels a little tight, 
I'd still recommend putting something together, even if you don't feel it's quite perfect yet, as there are many months between the selection stage and the final publication date, during which you could actually work with one of editors to fine-tune and finalise your writing. So as long as it's finished and it's very much in the direction you want it to go, I think it has a good chance, you know, if it's on theme and we're interested in it and it's good research, that it could still be published at the end. I think that's a relief to know for many of the aspiring contributors. So thank you so much. <laughs> You're welcome. Thanks for having me. <laughs> and as we've reached the end of this episode, we want to thank all our lovely guests, team, and of course, listeners for their support. Tune into the Movable Type podcast next month for a very special LGBT Plus History Month episode. Bye.